Good morning. So good to see everybody today. I hope you're enjoying your breakfast and your hot coffee. Calvin Art, thank you so much for uh, leading us this morning in prayer and in song. Uh, well, again, good morning. It's so good to be here with you. Go ahead and uh, flip open to Psalm chapter 56. We'll be looking at uh, the words of David this morning. If you were here last week, you know that uh, Pastor George, he preached and taught on Psalm 55. And like that chapter, Psalm 56 uh, deals specifically with the topic of trouble. One of you a couple of weeks ago told me, Barton, it seems as if a lot of the chapters we're looking at has to deal with trouble. And the answer is to that is yes. Um, <laughs> we talk about a trouble lot in here. God's Word talks about trouble a lot. And I, for one, am thankful. It feels like I'm stepping in trouble all the time. I don't know about you. Um, life is filled with trouble. That's what Job tells us, that life is short and it is filled with trouble. So how gracious it is of God then uh, that through his songbook, he gives us the words that we need for those seasons of life when we experience trouble. And uh, it's no different for Psalm 56. Last week we saw uh, and talked about the trouble that comes to us um, from those that we hold dear in acts of betrayal. Uh, today we're going to see that God shows us what we must do and gives us the words that we need when it seems as if the entire world is against us. And we're going to see what God has to say about that. Uh, just a little bit of context so we know what's going on in Psalm 56. David wrote this, and it's a season of his life that's depicted in 1 Samuel chapters 21 through 22. You can look at that later. But it's a very precarious season uh, of life for David. Uh, he's not yet king. In fact, he's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, during this time of David's life, he was... Uh, a fugitive. He was running for his life from the man who was the king of Israel, Saul. And Saul, with all of his resources and all of his men and his armies, were hunting for David, and they wanted him dead. David was on the run for his life as a fugitive, all by himself, no one with him. His 400 men were not with him yet. He was all by himself. And we see this, uh, this aspect in David's life, this season of David's life. Uh, he came to a state of where he was overwhelmed with panic. He started doing goofy things. In fact, uh, for whatever reason, we have no idea. In, in his attempt to run away from Saul, he runs towards the city of Gath. And we see this in Psalm, uh, or, or rather, 1 Samuel 21 and 22. He runs to the city of Gath, which, um, if you don't know, was a stronghold for the Philistines, and it was also the hometown of Goliath. Now, in case you're wondering if this is an odd strategy by David, you would be right. Why? Because, remember, the Philistines were the arch enemies of the Jews. And, oh, by the way, Goliath had just been humiliated and killed by David in battle. So this isn't just an odd strategy from David. It's complete lunacy that he's running to the city of Gath to get away from Saul. In fact, it's much worse than that. On his way to Gath, he stops off in this small town where he meets with one of his friends, Amalek. And Amalek wants to help David um, because David's all by himself. He has nothing to protect himself. Saul and his troops are after David. And so Amalek gives David a sword, which just happens to be the old sword of Goliath. So here you have our man David. He's running from Saul. He's going into the stronghold of his nation's enemies to the hometown of the man that he just humiliated and killed in battle, carrying that same man's sword. All right, just complete lunacy. <laughs> Why on earth would David do such a thing to get away from the trouble that he was already in? In fact, it's this action that tells us that David was in a state of panic. One commentator says that his actions here, his strategy, can only be explained by the irrationality of despair. You ever been in those seasons of despair or just you're, you're being flooded with the waves of worry that you're just not thinking straight? You're just doing dumb decision after dumb decision, doing anything you can to escape whatever trouble you're in, and in so doing, you just make dumb mistakes. That's what David did. He ran from Saul into the arms of another enemy who wanted him dead as well. So here's David. He goes into Gath. He goes into Gath, and, well, of course, he's immediately arrested because they knew who David was. Not only was he holding Goliath's sword, Okay, which was kind of a clue. But they also heard the songs that were being sung by David. The songs, by the way, that were mocking the Philistines. The song Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. They heard that song. Who were those thousands and ten thousands? Well, those were the Philistines that David was now hanging out with in Gath. There was a wanted poster 
for David in Gath. They wanted him dead. The whole city chanted for it. And so they arrested him. Of course they arrested him. They beat him senseless. They arrested him, and they were waiting to put him to death. Now, in the prison cell, he started doing what probably most of us would do. He started acting like a crazy person. He started uh, etching things in the walls and the stone floor. Spittle was all over his face and beard. He did that purposefully. He messed up his hair, started uttering nonsense. And for some reason, that worked. The king of the Philistines, he wanted the real David, the man who defeated his boy Goliath, and he wanted to kill this man, not this small shadow of who David used to be. And so almost kind of in mercy, but really he just didn't want anything to do with David anymore. David was a broken man, so he kicked David out of the prison cell and out of gas. So here's David now running from two enemies, Saul and his armies, and the Philistines. And he's wandering by himself all alone, and some way, somehow, he finds this cave in the town of Abulam, and he goes into that cave, and it's there in complete isolation that he pins Psalm 56. And in these words, we see from God what we must do when we too, like David, seem like the world is against us. Let's read it together, Psalm 56. This is the word of God. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, though, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God and the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we know it's no small deal that in your grace and in your sovereignty, you've gathered all of us here this morning for whatever reason. But we know the ultimate reason is that we might learn from your word. Lord, all of us have faced trouble. Many of us now are in a season of trouble uh, where when we leave here, we'll go back to work with worry on our mind. But Father, we pray that in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that what we hear from your word today, it wouldn't just be information, but it would be transform our hearts. Soften our hearts, O oh God. Quicken us. Awaken our ears that we might hear your truth and be transformed by it. We can't do that by ourselves, and I certainly cannot do that this weak vessel. We pray that you would um, work uh, in spite of who I am, in spite of my misspoken words, that you would take your word and that it would not return void, that you do a powerful work in our hearts. We pray this in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Earlier this year, um, well, actually yesterday, all the pastors gathered uh, at Dan Burns' house, our missions pastor, and we prayed for the missions conference that's going to be here at Second in a couple of weeks. And we prayed for the missions conference. We prayed for our missionaries. And one of the subjects we prayed for were our friends, our brothers and sisters in China. I mentioned this a, a couple of weeks ago, but as you know, statewide persecution has broken out against the church in China. And the persecution is this, that if the church does not register with the government, that is, that they wouldn't unless they synchronized their faith with the government ideals. And what that meant was um, that essentially they, they preach the sermons, they read the passages and sing the songs that the government says is okay to preach, read, and sing. If they didn't do those things, then all hell would break loose. And that's essentially what's happened. Uh, the government is following and keeping tabs on church leaders, Bible scholars, pastors, elders, church leaders in the church. About a month ago, hundreds of people were arrested, sometimes violently. They were dragged from their homes in the middle of the night. And even to this day, there are certain loved ones that have no idea where their spouses, where their fathers, where their friends are. 
Uh, you can imagine it's a very dark time to be a Christian in China right now. There's lots of fear uh, that they must be experiencing. Uh, but that's why the correspondence that we've received from our partners there and our friends have been so amazing. It's utterly shocking what we've seen that in spite of all these troubles that they are experiencing, not only are these Christians persevering, they're actually thriving. There's much fruit that's being seen right now in this persecuted church with these people experiencing horrors and troubles that we've never experienced. In fact, most people in China have not experienced the level of persecution they're experiencing right now, but nevertheless, they're not only persevering, they're thriving. Here's a couple of excerpts from uh, some of the correspondence that we've received. The one I want to read is by an elder. His uh, pastor had been arrested. He is preparing to be arrested. And he is informing his church how they should view and handle their persecution. This is what he says. He says, Beloved brothers and sisters, do you have joy? Are you rejoicing in the fact that you are suffering with Christ because of this church? Don't you know how blessed you are? The Lord is bestowing on us, poor people, today treasures of glory from heaven. The Lord himself is bestowing on us, weak people, comfort from heaven. The Lord is shining on us, blind people, his great light of life. Thank the Lord, church, for these hardships. For shaping us according to his word, may the Lord give us great joy and true hope as we rely upon and trust him. In another letter he sent to, uh, these churches sent to their partners like us here in the States, they asked for prayer, and those prayer requests had nothing to do with praying for the release of our friends and pastors. It didn't ask for us to pray for the end of persecution, but rather it prayed that the glory of Christ would shine forth and they would have an opportunity to share the gospel with their captors. Those were their prayer requests. Now, people all across the world, uh, not least of whom their captors, were asking the question, how in the world is that possible? How do they have that worldview, that mindset, that disposition in the middle of the tyranny that they're experiencing? The, the tactics of their captors are not working. How is this possible? Well, it's possible for the very same reason that David found to be true in the darkness of that cave. It was the word of God. For those partners in China and for David, the key to their faith was the powerful word of God. That, that which delivered them from their despair, that which transformed their suffering into joy, their pain and their fear into joy. That which David would later call the light of life, that is, it gives us light in the darkness of life, is the powerful word of God. That is the key to their faith. Friends, have you ever been afraid are you afraid right now? Are you in something in your life right now that's just beyond your control? You're in over your head. Have you ever experienced those seasons? Are you experiencing those seasons right now where those floods of worry just come over you as you're trying to go to sleep and it robs you of sleep? If you've been there or if you are there, Psalm 56 is going to be an encouragement to you. In fact, that's why God gives us Psalm 56. Right there in the title, there's this word, um, uh, it's, it's spelled mitkam. I'll probably mispronounce that, but this is what it means. It means engrave. And what that means is, is that God gives us this lesson of David for a bunch of guys like us so that we would have engraved on our minds and in our hearts that when we experience seasons of trouble, we might know that when we trust in God and his word, our fear will give way to powerful, defiant faith. When we trust in God and in his word, our fear, no matter whatever our trouble is, our fear will give way to faith. Now there's four things that I think God teaches us about him and his word in our seasons of trouble in this passage. And first, it's really the principle that I just said. The first point we see in verses 1 through 5 is that trust in God and his word will transform our fear into faith. That's what we see happen in David's life. Before David penned Psalm 56, he was at a place where all of us find ourselves when trouble comes to knock, and he was on a crossroads where he could either listen to the voices of fear or he could listen to the voices of faith. He was in that place where he had to decide whether if he was going to give in to his worry and his anxiety or was he going to trust in God. 
Now, as we just read in Psalm 56, we know that he ended up trusting God. He listened to the voices of faith. But I want us to think about that. Some of us might think to ourselves, well, of course David trusted God. He's a man after God's own heart. He's God's man. Of course he was going to trust God. Don't think that. Don't think there was something special about David. David was not a superhero. Sometimes we can come into this class, you know, and we're having a character study of people like David or Moses or Paul, and we think they're some superhuman person. They're not. They're ordinary folks who happen to receive extraordinary grace from God, but they're ordinary people. David experienced true fears, true problems, and he reacted to them realistically. He was afraid of what was happening in his life. He tells us so. He was actually afraid of what was happening to him. So I think it would be important for us to just think about these fears, these voices of fear that he had, because all of us can relate to him. We see three fears that he had. First and foremost, he was afraid of the physical harm that was falling in him. Uh, look at verse 1. He uses three words. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples me, man oppresses me, man attacks me. When David used those words, he's not being metaphorical. <laughs> he was being in those literally. There were people that were oppressing him. There were people that were attacking him. There were people that were trampling him. Listen, Saul and his army and the Philistines, they wanted to string up David and quarter him, and they wanted to laugh as they heard his last dying breath. He had every reason to be afraid. First off, they, they beat him to a pulp. Now he was in prison, and he knew the worst was about to come. They were about to put him to death, and he was afraid of that. It's important for us to remember that David was not a superhero. David was seriously afraid of the things that were befalling him, the things that were in his life he was fearful of. He acted just how any of us would act. He freaked out. He tried to do everything he possibly could do to escape this whole thing. He didn't want to die. We would have acted the exact same way. We do act the exact same way. For example, uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, about 25 yards from our front door, there was a woman that was robbed at gunpoint. She's okay. Um, thank goodness my wife and son weren't there. I wasn't home. Um, but when I got home, I feel like if I had been there, hopefully I would have helped her, and I definitely would have called the police, but I would like to think that I would have gone out there and helped her. Um, but after the whole thing had happened and I finally got home and I found out about it, I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't run down the street like John McClain from Die Hard to try to find those two guys. I've had illusions of grandeur of what I might do in these really, you know, these, these, these high-tense situations. I did not do that when I got home and heard about that. I was petrified of what might have happened to me and my wife and my son. I don't want to get shot. I've seen every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie there is. And I think, you know, I would have been a hero. No, absolutely not. I was petrified. And you would have been too, because why? We don't want to get killed. Nor did David. He was an ordinary person. He was afraid. So he was fearful of the physical harm that might fall him. We're, we're afraid of our physical lives too. Not all of it is, is gunshot or sword oriented. Some of it is just our health. We're afraid of our lives. We're afraid for our health. David was afraid for his life. Secondly, uh, he experienced the pain of emotional harm. And this is actually worse than his uh, fear for physical harm. He, he experienced emotional pain. In verse 5, he says that the entire city of Gath, and even those in Israel, those he was close to, slandered him. That's what his enemies were doing. Of course, they were beating him, and ultimately they wanted to kill him. But in order to gain support for that, in order to justify their murder of David, they were twisting his words and painting a picture of David that was not true. Uh, in Gath, they weren't painting a picture of him as an enemy combatant, a soldier on the other side. No, they were painting a picture of him as being a monster, this evil person that they, they should string up and quarter right then and there. In Israel, they were painting a picture of him as being a traitor. David uh, was promised to be king. Well, Saul liked being king. He wanted to do away with David so that he could remain being king. So he painted this picture of David being a traitor. Now we think to ourselves, uh, in David, in verse 5-6, he indicates that this emotional pain, this slander was much more painful to him than any physical beating that he received. And sometimes we can think to ourselves, well, that sounds silly. Physical beatings, of course, hurt more than words. But whoever said that song, sick and stones break my bones, but words never hurt me, that person has never been slandered before. We know how bad words can hurt. Uh, I think George alluded to last week that some of the worst pain that we could ever experience in this life is when those who are close to us who are supposed to have our back, say, for example, the king of Israel. 
Or say, for example, your business partners or your friends or your wife or your children betray you. Is there anything more hurtful than that? When you get falsely accused or when a picture of you is being painted that is simply untrue. That's what was happening to David. Those words cut deep and it left a scar far deeper than any physical pain or physical uh, 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 beating could leave. He suffered the emotional pain of being slandered, but that's not all. He suffered the duration of these attacks. David says, uh, God, be gracious to me. They beat me. They slander me all day long. He uses that phrase a couple of times, all day long. Now, what David meant, we're not exactly sure. Did he mean that the actual attacks physically and literally lasted all day long? There was no reprieve for 24 straight hours he was being beaten? Or is he talking about the emotional pain that was left after those beatings stayed with him? We're not sure, but I think it's probably the latter. And we know how hurtful the the physical residue of our attacks can be. No matter the intensity of an actual attack or a beating or trouble, no matter how intense that is, it's the emotional effects that we are left with that's far worse. Right? Because eventually those attacks and those slanders and those words that we hear, that's going to end, but the pain of it stays with us. Whether if it's the worry of, of, of what might happen, you know, being constantly berated with worry of, of what might actually happen, you know, it's all, our worry is always greater than what actually happens. Or it might actually be post-traumatic stress that sometimes we receive after certain types of trouble. Whatever that is, uh, those things, no matter how far you run or where you go or where you hide, that stays with you. It's a tyranny, our worry and pain, emotional pain. It just lasts longer than the actual attack itself. And David was experiencing that. David was a beaten down person emotionally. He was depressed, he was anxious, he was worried, he was afraid for his life. And lastly, he was completely isolated. As horrible as all of that junk was, how much worse was it that there was no one there to help him bear it? There was no one there for him to commiserate with. There was no one there to encourage him. There was no one there to pray for him. There was no one there to show him what he's got to do to get out of this mess because he knows that he can't figure it out. His mind is going all over the place. He just realized that he ran into Gath for crying out loud. There's no one there to help him. So he's desperate. He's isolated. And the voices of the fear keep on growing louder and louder and louder. And as you know, it's when those voices of fear grow loud that Satan does his worst work when he tempts us to despair. When he convinces us that God is not powerful, that God has abandoned us, that we're hopeless and that we are doomed. It's when those voices of fear are loud that we hear the voices of our tempter. So those are David's fears. Those are the voices of his fear. They're very real and he reacted to them reactionally. Realistically, he was afraid. And he asked that question right there in the middle of it. What, oh God, can man do to me? Well, he just told us man can do a lot. Man can do a lot to us. But this is where this psalm really gets cool. Uh, because when David asked that question, friends, he's really not asking a question. When David says, God, what can man do to me? He's, not, he's asking a rhetorical question that's dripping with confidence. Do you notice that when you, when you heard the words of this of this psalm, when he asked that question, it's a rhetorical question that's dripping with confidence. Somehow, someway, in the midst of the darkness of his life, David developed a defiant faith. And so when he asked this question, it's a rhetorical one. It's dripping with confidence. God, what can man do to me? I don't give a rip what man can do to me. This is what he's saying. Let them do their worst because ultimately man can't do squat against me. That's my paraphrase, but that's what David is intending here. He's saying man can't do a blessed thing to me. Yes, they can destroy my body, but man ultimately can't do a single thing to me. David had a defiant faith, right? How in the world did he develop that in the midst of his situation? How are our brothers and sisters in China, uh, how do they develop that defiant faith? We have to ask that question, why? I mean, if someone says, I am afraid, then says, therefore, I will not be afraid, we have to ask how. Without David telling us how, Psalm 56 is completely useless to us. How does David develop that defiant faith despite his circumstances? It's simple. He simply puts his trust in God. Our faith is a gift from God. It's nothing that we do to earn that or or to develop that. It's a gift from God. However, it is a volition of the will to actually use your faith. 
And so David says, in spite of his circumstances, I will trust in my God. And as we see here, it's when we trust in God that we develop a defiant faith in spite of our circumstances. There's a couple of things that we learn about what a defiant faith is, what it means, what it means that has a defiant faith. First off, it means that the object of our faith is God himself. In verses 3 and 4, and again in verses 10 and 11, David says, I will trust in God. I love this. Uh, You see it, it's like like a a, a refrain. Like the song we just sang, there's a refrain, and David's refrain is, in God I will trust, verses 3 and 4, and again in verses 10 and 11. Uh, Remember, this is poetry that we're reading here. Uh, People of Israel sang these in worship. David sang this. And what that means is when David is in the, the throes of worry, when he's in the darkness of his cave, he had a melody in his heart. Uh, There's a song in David's heart, and the refrain of that song, in spite of his circumstances, is, I will trust in my God. Yes, people beat me, but I will trust in my God. Yes, people slander me, but I will trust in my God. Yes, people want to destroy me and take away God's promises, but I will trust in my God. Over and over, he sings this song in his heart, I will trust in my God in spite of what is happening around me. Do you ever wonder why that sometimes is not the song of our heart as Christians? Oftentimes, the song of our heart are the voices of fear, right? Why isn't that I trust in God the song of our heart when we experience our trouble? I think this is why. Church father Augustine, he had a a phrase that he would often use, and it was this. In the midst of trials, we often see the greatness of evil and not the power of God. That is to say that sometimes we make our troubles worse than they are, or if our troubles are in fact big troubles... Sometimes because we fixate on our troubles rather than God, God just kind of fades off into the distance. We have been consumed by whatever that evil is in our life, whatever that trouble is. We've fixated on it. It kind of reminds me of the aperture of a camera. Reggie, tell me if I'm wrong in describing how a camera works, right? Please do, because I don't want to give false information here, Reggie. Um, But there's an aperture in the camera. And when the aperture is closed, there's less light that comes in. When that happens, that means that whatever is in the background that becomes more clear. Whatever it is that you actually want to take a picture of, it's kind of fuzzy, it's out of focus. But when you open up that aperture, more light comes in, and that which you really want to capture uh, comes into view. It becomes focused. And that stuff in the background, it just becomes fuzzy. It becomes less important to whatever is in the picture. Oftentimes, when we experience trouble, we fixate on the things in the background, and God becomes fuzzy. In order to correct that, we just need to correct the lenses of our heart. What is the focus of your heart? Do you fixate on your troubles or do you fixate on God? If you want to know, just listen to the song of your heart. Is it the voice of fear or is it that refrain, I will trust in my God? David's fear transforms to faith because he fixates and trusts in God. Now the question is, when we trust in God, how can we know that he is actually trustworthy? Right? How did David know that he could actually trust God to deal graciously with him, as he says in verse 1? Oftentimes we don't go to God because we don't really trust God. How did David know that God was trustworthy? It's simple. Not only is God the object of our faith, the content of our faith is the very word of God. The object of our faith is God. The content of our faith is God's word. D.A. Carson from the Gospel Coalition, he he says, although American currency has stolen a verse from this chapter, in God I trust. In America, with today's pluralistic age, it's not unreasonable to ask, which God do you actually trust? We don't really live in an atheistic, secular world as sometimes the church paints. We live in a very spiritual culture right now. Everyone believes in some version of God. Everybody has a version of who God is, of who Jesus is. Most of the time, it's a version of themselves, but everyone believes in something. The question is, what God are we trusting? David tells us, I'm trusting the God of Scripture. He says, in God I trust whose word I praise. David says, you want to know which God I trust? It's not some ambiguous version of my imagination. It is the God of Scripture. This is the God I trust. Friends, you know how important the Bible is? Sometimes I lose sight of that, and I know that I lose sight of it because I don't always go to the Word in my devotional life as often as I should. If I remembered how important God's Word is, I would be in there every moment of the day. God's Word is a necessity. It is vital. It's a treasure. There's a a fad right now in biblical scholarship and even in some churches that are downplaying the importance of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. 
Listen, the Bible, it's not an ordinary book. It is our very lifeline scripture. Why? Because it's God's very spoken word. It's his self-revelation of himself so that we might know who God is and therefore know that we can trust God. And this, it's his spoken word. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that when we're in a room and we're reading God's word, it's as if he is speaking to us directly, if he's sitting on the couch right next to us. How do we know that? Why? Because every word of scripture, Paul says, is breathed by God. It's spirit-inspired. Third person in the Trinity causes the biblical writers to write what he pleases. So that means whenever you read God's word in the privacy of your own home before you come here right now or later in church, whenever it is you read God's word, it's him speaking to you, friends, directly. Telling you who he is and why you can trust him. That's why God's word is so important for our lives in the faith. Because without it, we simply do not know who God is. And we wouldn't know how we could trust him. But, but David, he, he dives deep into the word of God. And, and that's the content of his faith. That's what enables him to trust God. Now let's think about David really quick. What is it he's talking about when he says, in God's word I praise? Because when David wrote that, he really only had the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, maybe the book of Joshua, at most six books of the Bible when David wrote this. So let's press down deep in that. When he says, in God's word I praise, of course he meant all of the scriptures that he had. He knew that it was all God's word. But there's something specific that I think he's pointing to. In God's word, I praise. I think what he's talking about are the promises of God. And we see this, I think, uh, illustrated in our passage. First off, he knew that God dealt graciously with his people because in those six books of the Bible is a record of all of God's gracious acts of redemption. He knows that God acts graciously to his people. But David also knew, too, that God will deal graciously with him personally. Look what he says. uh, What verse is it? Verse 9, he says, I know that God is for me. He knows that God is for Israel. He knows that God is for his people. But that's not what he says here. He says, I know that God is for me personally. How much of a difference is that? I know that God is for his church. I know that Christ is going to sustain his church. But how encouraging is it to know that God is for me, Barton, personally, that God is for you personally? Now, what was David, what specific promise was he talking about? I think he was talking about probably the Davidic covenant. When God, through the prophet Samuel, promised David that he would be the king of Israel, that his throne and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, and even the Messiah would come from his lineage. He took his fears to that. That was the anchor of his soul in the midst of his fears. Why? Well, he was not king yet, was he? He was, he was in a prison, and then he was in a cave all by himself, and the, the king of Israel at the time was trying to kill him. These promises have not come to pass yet. And and therefore, David says, I know that God's going to deliver me from this. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know God is a man of his word that he keeps his promises, and therefore, I must be delivered from this somehow. The content of God's word was the content of his faith. He trusted God's promises, and to trust God's promises is to trust God himself. Now you ask, why is it significant for us in Amen Bible study? That was a very specific promise, if that's what David was talking about, to David. God never promised me that I was going to be king of Israel. I don't know about you. How do I know this applies to me? What comfort is it for me? This is the comfort that you have. The Messiah has come. The true king from the line of David has come. And that man, that Messiah, that son of God has made very specific promises to you by his very own words and through the words of his apostles. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, we know that God is for us because before the foundation of the world, he predestined us in Christ. Before you were even a thought in your mother and father's eye, before there was even an atom formed, God was for you, Christian. God is so for you that he gave his only begotten son that should whoever believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. That's how you know that God's for you. God is for you, so much so that he actually became against his son. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. He received the wrath that we deserve because God is for you. God is for you so much, Paul tells us in Romans 4, that he was raised, Jesus, for our justification, for your justification. That's how you know that God's for you. And if God was for us then, Paul says, we know that now nothing could ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. That is how you know that God is for you individually, for you personally. And when you cling to those promises, then you can ask that rhetorical question to yourself, what can man do to me? Not a dadgum thing because my God is for me. 
That's the time where you say, amen, church. God is for you. What that means is you can take everything that's going on in your life, every single problem that you have, and you can take it to God, and you can trust that he is for you, friends. That's why God's promise, uh, his word, is is such a treasure to us. I'm going to confess to you that I, I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with worry. And if you're like me, there's a great resource over here at the Christian Psych Center, wherever we are logistically. And one of my counselors over there, a man that I love deeply, he helps me remember that. This is what he does. He says, Barton, what is it that's bothering you today? What is it that you're worried about? What is it that you're anxious about? And I'll tell him, and he'll actually get me to write it down on a piece of paper. Then he'll say, Barton, if someone came into your office as a pastor and they said um, that they were worried about these same things, what would you tell them? I would tell him, well, you need to go to the promises of God. He goes, Barton, that's what I, exactly what I want you to do. I want you to write down those worries, and I want you to think about what it is you're not believing about God. And whatever that you're not believing about God, I want you to go into the scriptures and find those promises and write them down right next to your worries. And the next time you worry and you're anxious, I want you to cling to those promises of God. Friend, because God is for us, that means you don't have to be worried about your trouble. It's an opportunity for you to cling to the promises of the Lord. And when you trust in God, when you cling to his promises, this is what happens every single time. Your fear gives way to defiant faith. Trust in God and his word. And your fear will give way to defiant faith. That's the main principle. Now, the next couple of points we're going to move through pretty quickly because I know we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, Because of God's word, uh, number two, we can trust that God, or rather we can trust God in the middle of every trial. Because of God's word, because of what he tells us in his word, we can trust him in the middle of every trial. Now, this is not explicitly stated in our text, but I think it very much is implied. And I want to stress it, particularly the phrase, every trial. We can trust God in the middle of every trial. I think it's important that we remember that because sometimes we run into the fallacy of differentiating between that which is sacred, quote-unquote, and that which is secular. That is, because I'm not a missionary, because I'm not involved in some sort of vocational ministry, because I'm not being persecuted for the faith, well, maybe then these promises don't apply to me. (laughs) We can beat ourselves. Our suffering isn't good enough for the Lord, sometimes we feel like. You ever been that way? Ever felt that way? Well, of course God is going to sustain our brothers and sisters in China. They're being persecuted for their faith. Of course God is going to sustain David and be with David and is for David. He's the promised king of Israel. He made a covenant with David. Of course he's going to sustain David. Of course God is going to be behind his preachers and his missionaries. They're trying to expand the the kingdom of God. My suffering has nothing to do with that. My suffering isn't spiritual. Furthermore, you might even be thinking that you've contributed somehow, some way to your trouble. And if that's the case, how in the world could you expect God to deliver you from it? Friends, if you're there, just remember David's trouble. Just think about it. First off, his trouble wasn't what you would call, quote, unquote, spiritual. It was very secular, the way that I'm using the words. First off, the Philistines, they were after David, not because of his faith or because he was a man of God. They were after him in a military pursuit. He was an enemy combatant. They just wanted to destroy David. Think about Saul. Saul's motivations were completely political. He didn't want David to be king. He wanted to be king, so he was getting rid of the competition. There's nothing terribly spiritual about those two things. Furthermore, think about how David contributed to this issue. There was at one point that he just had one issue to worry about, and that was Saul. But because he lost his mind and ran into the city of Gath, he now has two enemies chasing him, which is kind of a big deal. One commentator said the very fact that David left the promised land to go into the pagan world, Gath, meant that David was essentially abandoning the provision and promises of God. David contributed to his issue. He made his issue bigger and worse. But that did not stop David from going to God. And verse 1 said, God, please be gracious to me. And that, by the way, is rhetorical. He knew that God would be gracious to him. Uh, He knew that no matter if his problems were unspiritual or even if he contributed to him, he knew that he could trust them into God's hands. And friends, you can trust absolutely everything into God's hands, even if you're the cause of it. You can trust God with it. Why can we trust God with it? Number one, because we see in Scripture and in this passage that God is... Uh, providentially in power over everything. God is sovereign over absolutely everything. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a summary of the Bible, it's a way to systematize theology and helps us understand and learn better and quicker who God is. 
there's a question that asks, what are the works of God's providence? And this is the answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That means that God is with you and is powerfully in control of absolutely everything that happens, not just the spiritual stuff. He is sovereignly with you in absolutely everything. And just in case you're wondering, the Westminster Confession did not make that up. It comes right out of 2 Chronicles 6, 19, or 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth to give strong support to his people. It does not say that God gives strong support to those who are being only persecuted for the faith, who those who have only been uh, promised to be kings of Israel. No, it says to all his people he gives support to. He is with you in absolutely everything. He's with you through absolutely everything, David says. David trusted in God's sovereignty and his providence. and He knew that God, uh, God's people and himself could trust into God's hands absolutely everything that happens. There's absolutely not anything in this world that could thwart God's plans for his people, even those things that aren't spiritual. So whether if you have spiritual things going on in your life, spiritual troubles, or whether if you're just worried about your family, your kids, the state of your marriage, your job, your health, or maybe you're just dismayed by all the evil stuff we see happening in the world, or maybe you're just just terrified over something that you've created, no matter what it is, you can trust it into God's hands because he's sovereign over absolutely all of it. Furthermore, you can trust God in the middle of every single trial because God in his grace uses our trials for our benefit. It's kind of strange to say that, but God does use our trials for our benefit. Uh, We see that happen in David's life, right? It's in the middle of his trial, in the middle of his suffering, in the middle of the darkness of that cave that God draws David closer to himself. That's what God does. Notice, though, what David doesn't do. He doesn't say, God, I'm going to go to your word. I'm going to praise your word. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to follow you if you deliver me from all this. (laughs) That's not how sanctification works. It's in the midst of our trials. It's in the midst of our suffering that God does his work on our hearts. It's in the midst of some of the the people that, that are most holy in my life, if that's the way to describe people. But those who know God the most, that, you know, a level that I aspire to are those who have suffered a great deal. Because it's in the middle of their suffering, they get to know who God is. God reveals himself. He draws himself closer to the brokenhearted. That's what he tells us in Psalm 34. That's the ultimate purpose, by the way, of of what God does using our trials for our benefit, to draw us closer to himself. What are some of those other reasons? Well, there's thousands, but here's a few. One is to be more aware of our dependence upon him. Uh, Psalm 34 teaches that. When we're brokenhearted, God draws close to the brokenhearted. It's when we're brokenhearted that we're aware of how dependent we are of God. It's not until then. It's only when we're brokenhearted. Because before we're brokenhearted, we're still looking to our own strength and the things of this world. But it's when we're at our wit's end, when our hearts are broken, it's then that we finally look up to the cross and see how dependent we are of his grace. So he draws us closer to himself. Furthermore, he uses our trials to cut out the idols of our heart. That's how Micah describes it in Micah chapter 5. Sometimes God allows us to go through things to cut out the idols of our hearts. He's performing heart surgery. Does that hurt? Yes, heart surgery hurts. Why does God do it? To make us more like Jesus. Isn't it gracious of God that not only does he receive us as we are, you never have to clean yourself up to God. You can go to him as you are, but God in his grace too will never leave you as you are. How awesome is it to know that the man that you are five, uh, the man that you are today is different from the man that you were five years ago. If you're in Christ, what's happened to you in that time frame? You become more and more like Christ. And how does he do that? Jesus tells us in Mark 9, he salts us with fire. It's the refiner's fire. He's removing our impurities. He's removing uh, the rough edges. He's taking the poison of idolatry out of our hearts. He's making us more like Christ. So that might be a reason that God uses suffering and troubles and trials in your life. He's cutting out an idol. Or it could be just like our friends in China believed and rightly believed because Peter tells us this in his first epistle, chapter 1, that sometimes we just have the great pleasure and privilege of suffering alongside Christ. Of sharing in his sufferings in such a way that our faith becomes renowned and the glory of Jesus shines forth. That's why the elders said, friends, Do you have joy in your sufferings? Don't you know that you get to share in the sufferings of Christ? All that to say is no matter what it is that we're suffering, no matter what it is we're going through, we can trust God with it in every single trial, one, because he's sovereign over absolutely everything. 
And two, we have the good pleasure of knowing that not one of our problems, not one of our troubles, not any of our suffering is wasted. God uses it for his glory and for our good. But once we take these things to God, again, how can we trust that he's going to be gracious to us? All right, this is our third point. We can trust God's going to be gracious to us because we see in this passage that God is a compassionate God and he has concern for us. We see this in verse 7 through 9. Uh, David says, For their crime will they escape, O God? In wrath, cast down the peoples. You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. David knew that God was sovereign. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is even so sovereign and even so good that he even takes the worst things in our lives and uses them against themselves for his glory and for our benefit. But still, how can we trust that God's going to be kind about it? How do we know that he's going to be gentle with us? Well, David points us to his word. David tells us. And he tells us that we can be be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will be compassionate with his people and he does have concern for us. So much so, um, it's just like a father has concern for their children. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he cares about you. Just as a father is concerned for his kids, that's how our Father in heaven feels about us. First off, we know that God sees us. David says, you have kept count of my tossings, O God. How amazing is that? What David is saying is not only is God aware of where I've been and where I'm going, he's keenly aware He addresses this specifically, which means God is keenly aware of all the sleepless nights I've had. Is that encouraging to you? That God knows every single moment that you haven't been able to sleep and every single moment you've been overwhelmed with worry. It's in those times where we can't sleep, when the floods of worry have come over us, that we feel like no one possibly could understand. Even when we try to explain it to people and they try to give us a reasonable explanation or a reasonable answer, we, we feel like we're speaking a different language because we think to ourselves, there's no way they could experience or understand what it is I'm going through. And that might be true. Sometimes we're just going through stuff that we really can't describe to our spouse or to our kids or our best friend. They just don't know. But we never have to wonder if God knows. That's what David says. God knows you. He sees you. He would later say in Psalm 139, Uh, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know absolutely everything there is to know about me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you know all of my movements, you know my thoughts, and you are acquainted with all my ways. How encouraging is it, friends, that you never have to introduce yourself to God, ever. Once you've prayed to God and you go to work and you do your thing, and you go back to God in prayer, you never have to bring a bullet point list of the things that you all previously talked about. You never have to reintroduce yourself to God. Ever. That's a great comfort for us introverts, okay? Um, for us introverts, when we go to big parties or big gatherings, it is just, it is awful. Because first off, you don't remember anyone's names, the people that you're supposed to remember, so that's always awkward. It happens to me all the time. And sometimes, too, you have to reintroduce yourself to the person that you've met ten times, which is also awkward. Friends, you never have to do that with God. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your thoughts. He knows all your ways. You never have to introduce. Does that comfort you? I hope it does, friends, because that's the difference between owning your faith and renting your faith. We rent our faith when when we go through some nasty thing and we throw our hands up in the air and says, well, it looks like God has abandoned me. Does God even care about me? God, you can have this faith. I'm going to go try it on my own. We do that sometimes. That's what you call renting your faith. Owning your faith. That's what I want to do. I want to do what David did in in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of his trouble. He says, I will put my trust in God because I know that he sees me and I know that he knows me and I know that he cares for me. It's when you own your faith, that defiant faith, when you're trusting the Lord, that's when your fear turns into defiant faith. So one, we know that God sees us. Two, we know that God cares about us. This is what David says. He says, God bottles our tears. How reassuring is that? It might seem a little sensitive to some of us, but friends, that's a beautiful truth that God bottles our tears. This is what that means. Every time that you weep when your kids go to bed and your wife goes to sleep, for some reason we don't want them to know that we're sad or upset or fearful. But you know, when we're, when we're crying in the solitude of our own homes or when we're driving to work and tears are coming down our eyes by something that's bothering us, or maybe it's those silent, invisible tears that no one else can see but we can feel when the back of our throat tightens. Those tears that we wish that the people that were causing us pain would see. Or when we wish our kids knew how much we wept over them and prayed for them and cared for them. 
Those tears, God bottles. He remembers every droplet that falls from your eye, and they are precious to him. That's what David is saying. They're precious. Jesus says the same thing, by the way. He uses a different analogy in Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus says, Do you know that your heavenly Father will not let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from his will? And do you not think he will care for you also? What David is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is that our Father in heaven cares about us as individuals. They care deeply about us. And and God God feels that. He's compassionate towards you. Why? Because his only begotten son came down into our own griefs with us and for us as our great high priest. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. God cares for you, brothers. Ultimately, God is compassionate and he has concern for us. We can know that because ultimately he tells us that he's going to deliver us from every trial. You see that in verses 7 and 9. In verse 9, David implies that sometimes God delivers us from our trials in this life. He said after God bottles his tears, he says our enemies will turn back. What he's talking about right there is the power of our tears. He says compassion swings to those who are weeping. And oftentimes, that in itself rebukes our enemies. I want to let you know on Valentine's Day how awesome of a husband I am. After my honeymoon, we got back, and my wife and I were still trying to figure out what it means to be married, and we're still figuring that out six years later, so nothing much has changed. But that first week after our honeymoon, we're going through expectations of just how we were going to do life together, and one of her expectations was that we would not have a television in our bedroom, and we wouldn't watch TV at nighttime. We would just hang out and talk. What a monster, right? I can't, what are you talking about? <laughs> Jack Bauer comes on at 7 p.m., honey. What am I supposed to do with 24? <laughs> Come on. Unreasonable, this woman. And so we're having this argument, and I really get mad <laughs> about Jack Bauer. And I get mad, and I start yelling at her. And she's looking at me like I'm the biggest idiot in the world. But as I'm going on about how important Jack Bauer is to me, tears start to well up in her eyes. This is real. This happened. Tears began to well up in her eyes. After she was looking at me like I was an idiot, I could see her eyes become red. And when I saw that, it stopped me in my tracks. And this is why, because I realized that I was about to sacrifice intimacy with the woman that I promised to God and everybody that was at my ceremony that I would usher her to the throne of grace. I was about to sacrifice intimacy for her for a preference that I wanted to watch Jack Bauer. It rebuked me. It turned me back. Amy Carmichael says, our tears are everything to God, every one of them. Truth is, though, sometimes God does not deliver us from our enemies in this life. We see this in David when essentially he's pointing to the day of judgment where he says, cast down your and my enemies, O God. God might not deliver us from all of our enemies in this life. We still might have thorns in our life, as Paul himself had a thorn in his side all of his life. But we still can have the assurance that one day all things will be made right. Jesus promised us that it would. The prophets promised us that it would. Revelation paints a picture of what it will one day be like. Do you know that picture? The day that every tear will be wiped from our eyes. God will remember them because they're written in his book and he has bottles of our tears, but you won't remember them. Everything sad that's happened to you will be made untrue. Every trouble, every problem will be done away with and justice and righteousness and peace will reign. And friends, that victory is so sure. Your vindication as a man of God is so sure that you can celebrate that victory in the present. You can enjoy the peace that Christ has won for you in the present. You can endure injustice in the present because you know that God has the last word. That's what David shows us in this passage, and that's what he's trying to convince us of. That no matter how dark your cave is, it's when you trust in God and cling to the promises of his word, your fear will transform into defiant faith. It reminds me of Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I don't know if we're going to study that in this lesson series, so I won't spoil it for you. But this is essentially what Psalm 77 is about. There's a man who experiences some great hell. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it's just beating him down. So much so that he says to the Lord, that you've stolen my, my, uh, my, my peace, O oh God. You've kept my eyes open. My arms are weary from being reaching out for you. He can't go to sleep. This thing is just, just completely messing him up. But then in the middle of the passage, this is what he says. But I will remember. What is he remembering? He's remembering Scripture. 
that describes every gracious action of redemption that God has achieved for his people, most notably the Exodus account. And this man says, God, if you were gracious to me then, if you were faithful to me then, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even though I can't see you, you're going to be faithful to me now. This is what David says when you cling to the promises of God and trust in him, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he knows you, he sees you, and ultimately he delivers you. So much so as Psalm 126 says, the, the, the tears that you sow now will one day reap with songs of joy. And friends, it's in the light of this, and we're going to fly through this last point, it's in the light of that that we give thanksgiving to God. Uh, this is what David says, I'm going to give thanksgiving to you, O Lord. Not because I need to earn these different things, earn your grace, earn your compassion, but rather just to simply live in response to it. Because you've already given me this. And notice he says this in the midst of his trial. So he doesn't wait for ultimate deliverance. But he trusts God so much, he trusts his promises so much that he was enabled to trust God then and thank God then, even while he was still experiencing pain and trouble in this life. And friends, remember, he just had six books of the Bible. So as Christians on this side of the cross, how much more reasons do we have to give thanksgiving for God? We have several reasons to thank God as Christians. Number one, in Christ, we have been delivered from death. David knew that somehow, way, God would deliver him and his people from death. How did that happen? It happened in Christ. Paul tells us that Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. He's delivered you, friends, from death, spiritual death. In Christ, uh, he preserves us. David says, God, you're not going to keep my feet from falling. You will keep my feet from falling. As Christians, we know that to be true. Jesus himself says, whoever the Father has given me, I will not let go. You do not have to be afraid, brothers, of falling through the grip of God because Christ has you. And as Paul says, he will bring about a completion to the good work he has started in you. And in Christ, too, you have reason to be, be thankful because you've received abundant life in Christ. David says, God, you have given me your word. It's the light of life. Jesus says that of himself as the incarnate word. He says, I am the light to the world. And whoever walks in me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That means life abundant. The life that God intends for you can have in Christ now. Friends, we have every reason to be thankful and to rejoice and be joyful in this life, even in the darkest of caves. Because God is gracious to his people and we have assurance that he's going to keep his promises by the treasure of his own word. Really quick, Ravi Zacharias loved the man. He came to our church several uh, years ago for a Christian life conference and he told this story about God's word. He said he knew a man um, when he went to go visit Vietnam, 1970, and he was doing this uh, evangelistic crusade and he had this interpreter who was with him. He spoke English. He was a young Christian, one of the few Christians in Vietnam at that time, by the way. This man was very excited to be a Christian. He loved Jesus. After Ravi left, that man was arrested. Vietnam fell shortly after then. And he was arrested and he was thrown in prison because he was a Christian. Him and all the other Christians were thrown in, uh, thrown in prison. Their Bibles were confiscated. He didn't have his Bible any longer. He was beaten mercilessly and he was indoctrinated to try to get him to abandon the Christian faith and adopt Marxism. After several nights and weeks of being beaten, that's exactly what he did. He thought to himself, maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe this is fool's gold. Maybe God really doesn't care about me. He started renting his faith. One night he got latrine duty. And his job was to go into the latrine and clean up all the mess in there, all the foul. They didn't have great drainage systems in this prison or in Vietnam, and so they had to get the dirty toilet paper and put it in bags and take it out, burn it. That was his job. And as he was gagging, getting all these pieces of dirty paper and throwing them away, something catches his eye. He sees a piece of paper with English words on it. And as he saw it, he noticed that it was a Bible verse. Turns out the soldiers who confiscated those Bibles used them to clean themselves after they defecated. So in that foul, he was looking at this piece of paper with God's word on it. Amidst all of that ruin and all that grossness, he saw this. And the verse on it caused his, his, his lights uh, of his life just to shine. He, he, his lights just awakened. His mind just awakened. He had so much joy in his heart. And so after that, after he saw this one particular passage, he went back to the prison guard and said, can I have latrine duty tomorrow night? And the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And that's what he did. He went in there and he sifted through all of that junk to find every single piece of paper he could that had a Bible verse on it. And as he did, this is what happened. As he, as he got those pieces of paper and cleansed them and dried them and read them, all the fear that he had gave way to defiant faith and joy began building in his life. 
you know what that first passage was that he found? It was Romans 8. We know that in all things God works out for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Robbie Zacharias said that uh, what his tormentors, tormentors use for refuse, the word of God, could not be more treasured by his friend in the midst of his trouble. It was because the word of God that he was able to answer that reflective question, what can man do to me? Nothing. Because God is for me. Friends, whatever your trouble is, you can take it to the Lord. Whatever it is, you can take it to God. And trust him. Cling to his promises. I guarantee you, when you do, when you cling to his promises, whatever trouble you have, whatever fear you have, whatever worry you have, will give way to defiant faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these men. I pray that you go before them this day, that you would remind them of who you are, of how powerful you are, and that you are for them in Christ. Give them that confidence. Build them in faith. Build me in faith as we live for your namesake. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.